Welcome to Write Good, the podcast that helps you write good. I'm Raquel S. Benedict, and that's Harley, the cat. And I'm the most dangerous woman in speculative fiction, and that is the noisiest cat in speculative fiction podcasting. This is the second part of our two-part series on diverse speculative fiction of the 20th century. In this installment, we're taking a look at the later half of the century, the 1960s onward, an era which includes the new wave movement and cyberpunk. Joining us once again is former assistant editor of the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, Stephen Mazur. Thanks again for coming on, and thanks again for doing so much research on this. <laughs> no, thank you for having me. This is a lot of fun. It's a big privilege to get to talk about this, air opinions. I'm very grateful that you let me go on for so long the first time. I got really hoarse toward the end and yeah. uh, woke up the next morning with a big sore throat. So, <laughs> <laughs> so we gave you a COVID scare. Well, I, I've, my throat felt pretty bad at the end of the episode. So I figured like, oh, this must have been because of the recording session. So I wasn't too scared. That's I good. did test, though. That's good. People really did like the, the first part, though, which is really cool. I think a lot of people do have this perception that women didn't write sci-fi in the old days. And uh, I'm glad that we were able to try and correct that assumption. And and I think I think people are a little bit more aware that that sci-fi fantasy was diverse in and started opening up more toward racial diversity and more toward LGBTQ themes as we enter the late 60s, early 70s, and so on. But I still think people kind of underrate or, or underappreciate it. I think it's really valuable to examine people who, who wrote back then, to examine some of the diverse writers who wrote back then. And I think it's really, really interesting, especially to look at queer fiction from back in the day, too. Yeah. Well, she, you're right. There's there's more people out there. I mailed Rich Horton about somebody, somebody for the the Cordwainer Smith Award, and he mentioned a couple of other writers of color. One of them, I think her name might have been Pauline Baines. Uh, I, I didn't make a note of it. Uh, I'm not exactly sure if she was a, a genre writer. I think she wrote some things that you could kind of consider genre adjacent i guess sort of in the same way that maybe zora neale hurston was um mm. she was writing around the the turn of the 20th century and uh oh the other writer that he mentioned was a british a black british writer from the 60s who i i think he classified as a ya writer and uh now i don't have my email up right now Oh no! Um, maybe I could give it to you later. You could put it in the, in the in the show notes. I think I mentioned this at the towards the end of the last episode. While there are a lot of women in general, I, I guess you could say white women in the history of the field who who get overlooked. There really is, unfortunately, very few black writers in the genre, and until sadly very recently, it's much easier to find and talk about those people because there are so few which is unfortunate. But as far as I can tell, that's just kind of the way it is or the way it was. Mm. All right. Bit of a downer. Bummer. <laughs> yeah. 
Okay, so starting off on that very high note, let's talk about how sci-fi and fantasy, how how the publishing world changed a little bit as we start moving toward the mid-60s and into the 70s. Sure. Well, I know that we said we were going to talk about people other than than white women in this episode, so I just want to start out by talking about white women a little bit more. <laughs> Uh, from the end of the episode, from the end of the first episode, there's just an interesting uh, structural change that happened. I went on a little bit about how, you know, there were actually a lot of women in science fiction from the 30s through the 50s. There were more each decade in those decades until in the 1950s, there were at least 154 women who published at least 634 stories in science fiction magazines in the 1950s. It's a big body of work that gets overlooked a lot. And I feel like I sort of criticized feminist writers of the 1970s who put forward this idea that there were never really very many women in science fiction until the feminist writers of the 1970s, which isn't true. But they did have they did have a bit of a point. Generally, science fiction was welcoming. The editors were welcoming, but it wasn't perfectly welcoming. Some, you know, there were sexist people. Oh, I am hearing that buzzer. Uh, Damn. All right. (laughs) It wasn't welcoming. No. Well, that was good timing then. That's going to happen again. That's going to happen one more time in uh, another, within the next few minutes. Okay. So, 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 for the record, uh, our, our guest put a load of laundry in the dryer just before sitting down to record this podcast. Well, like an hour before I thought to myself, like how long is the, is the dryer cycle again? Maybe it'll get finished just in time. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. Very professional. Um, (laughs) That's the uh, right. Good promise. Absolute professionalism. Dryer buzzing on one side, cat screaming on the other side. It's very good. Uh, High standards here. Some of the stories that got published in the 50s were pretty sexist. I'm thinking of The Queen Bee by Randall Garrett, which I won't go into it because, you know, this isn't the episode for it, but it has been called the most reviled story ever published in a science fiction magazine. Look it up. I think it's on the internet somewhere. It's pretty offensive. Actually, it's it's very offensive. So that was published in Analog in 1958. But to talk about more structural things, Feminist writers of the 1970s did have a point in that in their recent past, there weren't very many women in the field. There was a big drop off at the end of the 50s. So from like, let's say like 1960 to 1965 or so, there were uh, far fewer women writing in the field in those years than there had been. So like I said before, in the 50s, at least 154 women who published at least 634 stories in the 1950s, but from the years 1961 to 1965, and again, I'm getting these numbers from Partners in Wonder by Eric Leif Davin, from 61 to 65, there were only 56 women who published stories, and they only published 133 stories. And it wasn't evenly spread over the magazines. Almost half of those 133 stories ran in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. So if you weren't reading FNSF or maybe amazing and fantastic, 
those three magazines in the early 1960s, you really weren't going to see a lot of female bylines. Why did this happen? Yeah, why? Well, uh, again, I'm going from Partners in Wonder here. The first wave of women's science fiction was tied to the short story format. For the most part, it was women who were writing short stories that were getting published in science fiction magazines. And part of the reason that the number of women jumped so high in the 1950s was that in the 1950s, there was a big magazine boom. There were just a lot more science fiction magazines around in the 1950s to publish in. So even though the pulps were dying in the 1950s, digest size magazines, basically just magazines folded, more magazines got started to take their place. So by 1953, there were 35 different science fiction magazines on the newsstands, which compared to today, even with the amount of, of online magazines we have is still an amazing amount, yeah, especially considering amount. they were all print. And over the course of the entire decade of the 1950s, there were 61 different magazines that published issues. So that's the big boom. But what happened is that if there's a big boom, there was a big crash. Um, uh. Yeah, see, in the late 1950s, there was this big upheaval and contraction in the science fiction magazine industry. On the one hand, you had the, um, the beginning of the rise of books, science fiction books. So in the 30s and 40s, mag science fiction only appeared in magazines in, starting in the 50s and going into the 60s. Now, um, books started to become competition for the magazines, but really more importantly, and what I've been building up to is that there was a big collapse in the late 1950s of the magazine distribution system. The biggest magazine distributor, just any kind of magazine distributor, I think it was called the American News Corporation. I, I might be forgetting that, but the point is the biggest national magazine distributor went out of business and Ooh. wiped out tons of magazines pretty much overnight. The majority of science fiction magazines went out of business because that one distributor went out of business. So like I said, in 1953, there were like 30 or 40 science fiction magazines. And 10 years later in 1963, there were only seven or eight. So just a huge collapse. People were really worried about it wow. uh, in the field at the time. In 1950, I'm sorry, in 1959 alone, 12 science fiction magazines folded. So, Oof. yeah, it was a big issue in the field at the time, quite a uh, historic moment. So, like I said, women's science fiction, it's a short story format published in magazines. So if most of the magazines disappear, then there's just a much, much smaller and declining market available for their work. With this collapse of most of the magazines in the field, science fiction turned even more to books, which meant that the novel gained primacy. And with this shift from short stories to novels, relatively few women from this period made that shift. Hmm. Now, I don't really know why in Partners in Wonder, Davin puts forth the the idea, perhaps, that maybe a lot of these women just didn't have the time or the energy to start writing novels on spec. If you think about, you know, the place of women in broader society back in the 1950s, it's pretty tough, right? What are most women expected to do? Keep house and home, look after kids. So, you know, if you're spending all of your day 
doing domestic work. Sure, if you're a good writer, you can probably like write like a six or 10,000 word short story over the course of a few weeks worth of evenings, but writing a whole big book is a much bigger commitment. So for whatever reason, a lot of women writers at the end of the 50s just dropped out of the field. So like I said, from 1961 to 1965, there were a lot fewer women in the field. So if you start coming into science fiction at that time and reading magazines, reading books as they come out, you might think like, hey, there's no women in this field. And, you know, it's much harder to find old stuff back then since it was so ephemeral. So the women who were coming into the field in the late 60s and the early 70s, they did have a point there in that there there hadn't been that many women in the in the recent past. But so I just wanted to bring that up. Because I find these big structural uh, issues in in publishing to be to be pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah. I kind of think we we ignore that when we talk about trends and and artistic movements and stuff in culture. We just talk about it like it's purely cultural, and we forget the ability to spread or publish or record or whatever your form of art really really affects what that art is going to look like. Right. Yeah. It's like how writers, it's like how science fiction and fantasy writers today, every once in a while, you'll see somebody on Twitter post a snapshot of their Barnes and Noble and it's George R. R. Martin's Song of Ice and Fire books taking up the whole shelf. And they're like, this isn't fair. J.R.R. Tolkien books taking up the whole shelf. It's like these dead old white guys taking up all the room on the shelf, which like, I guess it's kind of true, but if you really look out to the rest of the store, the general fiction section, much bigger than the science yeah. fiction section. So is the mystery section. I mean, look at the, the manga and the graphic novel section is at least as big now as the science fiction and fantasy section was. And I don't think that section even existed in the store when I was a kid. So there's just, there's much bigger broader issues at play as to why things are difficult now right. for writers in the field that are much bigger and much more powerful than one or two or three popular writers. Right. Yeah. Right. So why don't we talk a little bit about the 60s and 70s? So we had that drop of women or in or at the end of the late 50s, but it looks like as we move toward the 70s, it looks like there's a little bit more of an opening up to BIPOC writers and openly queer writers, at least in American sci-fi and fantasy. Why, why do you think that is? Is that just in keeping with general societal trends or... Yeah, I, th I think so. By the end of the 60s, early 70s, oh, I don't have the note here in front of me now. I, I put it away, but I took a note somewhere from, from one of the books that I consulted that, let's say by the, the early years of the 70s, there seemed to be about as many women as there had been writing generally as a percentage of the overall field. I think either Sifwa or Pam Sargent in her... Uh, intro in Women of Wonder did like a general survey of, I think, CIFWA members at the time to see how many of them were women. And it was somewhere around 15 to 17%, which was about the same percentage as the amount of women writers that had appeared in specifically the magazine of fantasy and science fiction in the 1950s. And like you said, there was a, a an opening up of, of 
queer writers, of, of gay and le- op- more openly gay and lesbian writers in the 1960s. Samuel L. Delaney uh, was, uh, was yes. black and he was gay. Giga Chad. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and he published his first novel with Ace in 1962. I don't. I didn't do very much research on him because I, I figured, you know, yeah, we're probably pretty well looking known, for I unsung hope. people of this time. Yeah. And like you, if, if you're listening to this podcast, we hope you know who Samuel or Delaney is. Yeah. So I, I hope that <laughs> we hope you or, already know who he is. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know for certain if he was always out as a as a as a gay man professionally within the field. I know that he was in a marriage with the poet Marilyn Hacker for a time mm. in, in the 1960s. But uh, at some point, whether it was right at the beginning or later on, it was known that he was gay. I'm pretty sure that David Gerald was always out as a gay man, and and he started working in the field towards the end of the 1960s. I, I think he began in television. He famously wrote the original Star Trek episode, The Trouble with Tribbles, and oh, wow. uh, he started, yeah, and he he wrote and published a number of respected science fiction novels in the early and mid-1970s, such as The Man Who Folded Himself, and When Harley Was One, I think was the, the name of the novel. I'm pretty sure he's the writer who coined the term computer virus. And of course, oh. you know, Gerald's I th- I think so. I I didn't make a note of that, but I'm pretty sure that I have heard that or read it somewhere in the in my life. That uh, yeah, and I'm pretty sure it was the novel when Harley was one when he did that. So he was getting nominated for for Hugo's and Nebulas in the in the 70s, and um, I mean That's he's cool. still working today. He's had a long and pretty successful career. I think in, in this case, you know, it's just reflective of of the broader times, the broader culture. Mm-hmm. 60s and 70s, things are starting to open up and that's trickling down into the field. Although I will say that for all the faults that the the, the, the American science fiction and fantasy field has, for a lot of its history, right from the, the start in the late 20s, early 30s, and moving up towards, I guess you could say, the present day, has in a lot of ways been pretty open and uh, and accepting of of different kinds of people it's always sort of been kind of a um mm-hmm. you know a place for uh people who a don't place for in. outcasts and yeah, yeah outsiders <laughs> and weirdos right exactly <laughs> uh you know a lot of caveats and with with that but, yeah big you know, fat asterisk after that but sure but but broadly speaking i guess you could say more tolerant or more progressive than the broader mainstream conservative society in one way or another. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that definitely being the case, especially in the sixties and seventies, there was this, my perception is there was just a real openness to it before, before corporations kind of sank their teeth into it and managed to turn everything into big franchises. There was this real sense of openness and do what you will. And I, I find that really exciting and beautiful. Yeah, the seventies, the sixties, and the seventies, moving into the eighties, were were an, a very interesting time artistically for science fiction in general. Because at this point, the field had matured somewhat, so you're getting a lot of really interesting work from a lot of different people. But like you said, it hadn't become corporatized yet. Yeah. I, th- I think. The first stirrings of of that started after Star Wars got really popular. Yeah, 
So a bunch of different publishers started publishing science fiction lines. And if you, it's funny, if you read interviews from authors at that time, the writers who had been in the field for 15, 20, sometimes 30 or 40 years at that point were really salty and bitter <laughs> about that. Right. Because... Said, this fucking Star Wars shit, I hate it. Yeah, like, first of all, a lot of them hated <laughs> Star Wars on artistic grounds because to them it wasn't really science fiction. And, you know, it's not. It's like it's space fantasy. It's it's fantasy masquerading Yeah, it's got, like, wizards fiction. in it and shit. Right, exactly. They objected to it on, like, political grounds. They also objected because there was this big, there was another big boom of, of science fiction novels in the late 70s and the, the, the early 80s. A lot of newer writers were getting a lot of money thrown at them for advances. And these older writers were kind of like, hey, what gives? Why I should be getting this money. Like, I paid I'm... my dues, man. Yeah, exactly. And I think they, they just thought, it's funny, a lot of these interviews, they complain about the same things back then that we complain about today, that, you know, the new work is unserious, it's ignorant, it's not really science fiction, it's poorly written. <laughs> Right. All the good work is getting ignored, so it's just funny how how <laughs> things stay the same. Yeah, uh, the the one saving grace about it, though, at least for that time period, is that book publishing as an industry didn't really start to merge and consolidate until I guess maybe like the mid '80s. So there were still a lot of different smaller houses at that time. The industry, I guess you could say, was bigger in that there were there were more companies, more editorial staff. It wasn't it's kind of the same way with movies today, how every yeah. movie gets so much money put into it that it has to be a big hit. So it has to play to the lowest common denominator. So there's no room for anything that's interesting. Right. So that hadn't happened yet in the book industry. There's just a lot of interesting, mature intellectual work from yeah. that time, some of which yeah. is dated. I, I've of course. Yeah, a lot of the new wave stuff can be dated because it deals with like these literary techniques that if you read it now, it's just kind of like, well, this doesn't really work as a story in, in 2022. But a lot of the stuff from that time is is really great. And for me personally, yeah. I, I kind of consider the new wave to be my own personal golden age. I just I like a lot of yeah, work I've read from yeah. that period. There's so much experimentation and yeah. you get a lot of social science fiction, I think, instead of engineering science fiction right. a lot of science fiction that's more about what if society was different not because of here's such and such device but because we just decide to live differently i mean this is the era where we get i've got to mention it the left hand of darkness right Ursula Gwen. we don't need to talk about her in depth because if you're listening to this podcast you know who she was but you know this this gender fluid society or i'm also thinking of emerge piercy's Women on the Edge of Time. When was that? That was 1976, which was this like a gender fluid, anarchist, utopian science fiction novel, which I read as a teenager and was really, really cool. blown away by. It's really, really good. It, it gets dark, but it's super good. And we'll probably do it for a book club at some point in the future. But... Let why don't we dive in and start talking about some of these more diverse, uh, interesting queer or or by POC writers that we start seeing emerge in the 1960s and 1970s. Sure, whoever whoever you want to talk about. All right. Um, I guess I could start with Edgar Pangborn. He actually started publishing in the 50s, but his best work 
his his best known work was uh, a series. It's called the Davy series, D-A-V-Y, a few novels, some short stories. And that started in 1964. So he was a um, posthumously were it seems fairly clear that that he was gay he he was closeted so he was born in 1909 and uh he died in 1976 his mother was a noted writer of macabre and horror fiction her name was georgia wood pangborn and uh, Ed, edgar attended harvard for music when he was only 15 didn't complete a degree he also went to the new england conservatory of music also no degree so he uh, he had an early career as a, a composer, and he started writing in the 30s and, and the 40s. He, he wrote a lot of pulp mystery and detective stories before he started writing science fiction in the early 1950s. He debuted in, in Galaxy magazine. He also served in the Second World War uh, in the, the medical corps in, in the, the Pacific Theater of the War. But getting back to uh, his Davy novels, the first book is called Davy. It's a few novels and some short stories. These works are set in a, a post-nuclear holocaust United States. They're picaresque adventures of the title character, Davy, uh, in which, you know, in the aftermath of this nuclear war, the U.S. has balkanized into a bunch of different feudal enclaves. And some of the other book titles are The Judgment of Eve, The Company of Glory, and Still I Persist in Wondering. I, I brought him up because, like I said, he he appears to have been uh, closeted. Some of the sources that I, I read about him say that uh, a lot of his work was infused with a sense of longing and a lot of sensitivity and some instances of, of homoeroticism. So he's an example of the type of writer that I mentioned in, in the previous episode where he's mostly, he started writing and mostly wrote in a time where it still wasn't exactly safe to be right. out as a gay person. So he was closeted, but beyond just his, his status as a um, most likely gay, uh, he's also important because in his work, he, he wrote in an emotionally poignant way, similar to Theodore Sturgeon and uh, Pangborn influenced a lot of other writers, specifically Peter S. Beagle and Ursula K. Le Guin, just the, the two biggest and most important. He demonstrated that you could write science fiction in a, uh, a very human way, a very emotional and deep sort of way, as opposed to if you wanted to paint a broad brush, the sort of stereotypically cold and... Uh, flat hard science fiction yeah. was more pre prevalent at the time so he's uh he's not very well known although in in 2003 he was he did win the posthumously uh, of course win the Cordwainer Smith Rediscovery award hmm. so you know his work is out there and it seems like uh it's worth a look nice nice yeah. All right, so why don't we go into some more uh, LGBTQ writers from that era you said that Oh, gosh. Am I looking at this wrong? Am I doing this too early? There was a magazine that had the editor was transitioning while she was at the head of yes. it. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I'll. She's she's pretty cool. Okay. Let me get my notes. Before I start talking about this writer, I'll just briefly mention, I didn't write anything up about 
about him, but in the same vein as Edgar Pangborn being closeted, mm. it seems likely that Thomas Burnett Swan was also a, a closeted gay writer. He wrote mostly in the 70s, I think going into the 80s. A lot of his work was pastoral fantasies dealing with the transition from the pagan world to the Christian world. So, you know, a lot of Greco-Roman creatures like fauns, centaurs, things like that. His career was cut short by cancer. I think he died in his 40s, unfortunately. Jeez, that's young. Yeah, these these things happen. That's part of why, that's just one of the reasons why, why writers get forgotten. Their careers are cut short. They died on timely times. Roselle George Brown was another one like that. She was a woman writer from the 50s who seemed to really be gaining steam as, as a writer. And, uh, but unfortunately, she died also of cancer when she was 41, right after her first novel was published. Unfortunately, the name of which escapes me. But I do remember that it's about a, a mom who is a detective, a science fiction detective. It seemed fun. Mm. Uh, but anyway, so the, um, <clears throat> the, the trans woman that you brought up that I want to talk about now is Jessica Amanda Salmonson. She was born in, in 1950. She is a, a trans woman. Some of her early short work from the 1970s was published under her birth name. And uh, what you alluded to at the beginning, yes, so she, she was the editor of the literary magazine of Fantasy and Terror in the mid-1970s for its entire run of only seven issues from 1973 to 1975. So I, I assume it was a a small press magazine, I guess you could yeah. say. But so she edited and uh, contributed fiction to that magazine under her uh, under her birth name. And then while she was editing this magazine, she underwent a sex change and a name change to Jessica Amanda. And she recorded this experience openly in the magazine and continued to write fiction during this time. So, you know, that's that's really bad. cool. Yeah. Yeah, that is cool. Cool thing. And she continued to have a career after that. Yeah, you know, I think it it speaks pretty well of the field, and and also of course her for 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 having that that courage to to be so open about it. Her first significant publication was editing the anthology Amazons, which I said like that because it's got an exclamation point at the end of it as part of the title. <laughs> Amazons. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's a, it was an anthology of of fantasy stories about strong women not subordinate to or defined by men. Well, oh, yeah, must, yeah, must have picked that up from uh, from promotional copy. Amazons was published by Daw Books in 1979. And uh, it won a World Fantasy Award in 1980 for Best Anthology. Nice. Yeah, yeah it was. It, uh, it was an important book at the time. It appears to have been trailblazing for stories of, of female sword and sorcery. Because at least in the, in the, the near past of, of that era, there doesn't seem to have been very much of that. Now, of, of course, there's C.L. Moore's Jeril of Joyry stories from the, the 1930s and 40s. But female sword wielders as a as a, a topic of interest had kind of fallen off at some point in the intervening decades so that's a you know, shame yeah i know it's it's a good understand. subject girls with swords is is a very it is a very good topic it's that has broad appeal i think i can't think of any objections to it yeah. <laughs> so the anthology it spurred a lot of subsequent stories in the subgenre there was a follow-up published 
Amazon's two in 1982. She also wrote the Encyclopedia of Amazons, Women Warriors from Antiquity to the Modern Era. That was published in 1991, which has over a thousand different entries of women warriors, both real and fictional. A lot of her work seems to have appeared in in small presses, at, at least her short fiction, mm. which seems to have limited some of the visibility of that. But she did publish, she wrote quite a few novels in the 1980s and more following in the the 1990s. I think the most, uh, <clears throat> I guess you could say the most prominent of those was her Tomoe Gozen trilogy, which was published in the early 80s by Ace Books. So it's a, uh, a fantasy, it's a fantasy trilogy that was inspired by feudal Japan and the real life female samurai Tomoe Gozen. Apparently female samurai and ninja were more common in real life than, than you might think, or at least than I might think anyway, huh. uh, according to the Wikipedia article about it. So these were heavily researched books. They have a feminist slant to them. The first novel is called Tomoe Gozen. And uh, in 1999, Salmonson revised it and retitled it as The Disfavored Hero, in case Hmm. anybody's trying to look at it. When I was researching this, the original cover for the first book is pretty cool. Is it a cool lady with a sword? Yeah, you know it. Hell yeah. Yeah. Hell yeah. (laughs) So that's um, probably I have look. simple desires for what I want on a cover of a, of a fantasy sword and sorcery novel, and it, it is a cool lady with a sword, or a cool <laughs> guy with a sword, you know. I mean, you know, <laughs> this is the good stuff. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. No vague stock photo. I want someone with a sword holding the sword. Oh, God, the covers today are so terrible, They're aren't so they? They're so boring. Bland. They're so boring. Yeah. They're so bad. That's another reason why old science fiction is cool. The covers yeah, rule. Yeah, there's like a barbarian dude in with who's extremely caked up holding a sword. <laughs> I know th- I know there's a lot of complaints about 1980s bikini armor on covers, which to be fair, but to be yeah. fair, the men were equally yeah, equally and- exposed in, in a lot of Boris Vallejo's art. Rad. Yeah, it was sweet. But yeah, you know so exactly she, what you're getting. You're going to get like a hunky barbarian with a sword in your book. That is what the book is about. Yeah. And it's more interesting to look at than a Shutterfly stock photo or whatever <laughs> the hell. And a free font. Ugh. Oh, boy. Ugh. But anyway, we are digressing. Right. Let us yeah, get so, back to the 60s and 70s. <laughs> right. So just the, the last thing that I'll say about Salmonson, in addition to to being a fiction writer, she's also important as an editor and compiler of collections of 19th and early 20th century supernatural fiction and ghost stories, which are of historical significance. So a few examples. One of the books that she did is called The Faded Garden, The Collected Ghost Stories of Hildegard Hawthorne. And Hildegard Hawthorne is Nathaniel Hawthorne's granddaughter. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I I didn't know that he had a granddaughter, and I didn't know that she wrote she ghost was stories. Spooky. Yeah, yeah. She also wrote, uh, I'm sorry, edited a collection, an anthology called What Did Miss Darrington See? An Anthology of Feminist Supernatural Fiction, uh, which mm-hmm. won a Lambda Literary Award in 1990 Hell. for lesbian science fiction and fantasy. Hell yeah. Yeah. She also edited a book called Mr. Monkey and Other Sumerian Fables um, from some small university press in 1995. It's about Sumerian beast stories. And uh, she sounds fascinating. 
Yeah, yeah. It she really when I was reading about her and reading interviews that she gave, she really does seem like a uh, just like a cool person. She was born in a traveling carnival and what? uh that that's what she said in a 2004 interview. What? She said that yeah, she said that her mother was a sword swallower and her stepfather was a fire eater. What? Yeah, rad. <laughs> that is so cool. She sounds amazing. I think I had heard her name before this. I I asked my old boss, Gordon Van Gelder, when I was researching people, just like, hey, uh, I'm going to be doing this podcast about diverse people. Who don't I know about? Who are some names? Who can you tell me about? And I'm I'm pretty sure he mentioned Jessica Salmonson, among some other people. So just, yeah, seems like a cool person. Seems like she wrote cool stuff that is worth taking a look at. I've never seen any of her work in real life, but I guess you can probably get it off of the internet or wherever. Yeah, it'll be somewhere. It's probably somewhere. Maybe it's time for the Renaissance, for the Jessica Amanda Salmonsance. Salmonsance, that's it. Salmonsance, bring her back. Yep. <laughs> All right. Uh, some more LGBTQ writers. You, I, I see you listed someone named Melissa Scott. Yes. I didn't take down that many notes about her, but she's a, a uh, lesbian writer who was born in Little Rock. She won the John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer in 1986, and she's won several Lambda Awards. Her first novel was The Game Beyond, published in 1984, and that is a space opera. She wrote seven novels in the 1980s and uh, more in the 1990s, mostly with Bane books and uh, some with Tor books. She's mostly a novelist, not a short story writer. It looks like over the past 15 years or so, unfortunately, her career seems to be drying up a little bit. She's she's had to publish with either small presses or, or go self-publishing. She mostly writes space opera, hard SF, and, and cyberpunk works. And the, the reason... The reason that I wanted to bring her up, and this is just the the last thing that I have on her, is that she tends to write novels with LGBT protagonists. So you're getting that representation, not just from the writer, but also in the work as well. So I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. And do you know roughly when she started writing novels with, with openly queer characters? As far as I know, probably from the beginning. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah, that was a ways back. That was it was pretty daring to do that, I think, back then. I think so too. Like I said, by this point it's the the early to mid 80s, so Yeah, that's that th- that's are, a big deal. Things are definitely opening up, but yeah, still still a big deal. Just because things are becoming more possible doesn't mean that they are uh, easy. No, definitely not easy, especially in the whole like there was a real rightward swing in, in American culture. We had Reagan was elected. There was the AIDS epidemic. A, a lot of mainstream politicians were outright saying that AIDS is God's punishment for homosexuality. This was a mainstream political opinion. So it was it, it was a rough time for queer people. Yeah, so being um... open and writing openly LGBTQ characters during that decade did take a lot of guts. Yeah, it's it it really is sad when you just think of of uh of how many people died in the AIDS crisis. Uh Yeah. You go look at somebody's bio like I really like the movie The Secret of Nim 
And not too long ago, it popped into my mind and I thought like, oh yeah, you know, the guy who did the voice of Jenner, the evil rat, what a cool voice he had, but whatever happened to that guy? And uh, his name was Paul Shinar. And I looked him up and it's like, oh, he died in the 80s from AIDS. Shit. Yeah. There was this practically like a lost generation almost. Yeah. Of, of queer people. This this loss, the, this link in, in the chain just like fucking gone almost. And I, and I don't want to act like, oh, everybody's gone. But so many people. Yeah, it, uh, it got gone. a lot of people. It's horrific. Yeah. It uh, actually, it uh, it got Isaac Asimov. Wow, what? Yes, he died in uh, I think 1992 from complications of AIDS. He. Oh, um, I didn't know that. I didn't know that was his cause of death. Yeah, it it wasn't public. It wasn't really made public at the time, but it came out afterwards. He had a, from what I remember reading, um, not recently, but from what I remember reading, he uh, he had a. Uh, heart bypass surgery sometime in the later 70s and that's how he got it some of the the blood that was given oh, to him yeah. was uh you know it was bad blood it, it yeah a lot the, of people got it from it. blood transfusions early on before they yeah, knew how to detect it right because they just didn't know so yeah it manifested itself later on but uh, yeah that's what happened to him oh wow i had no idea yeah yeah a lot of people a lot of people it really is a shame yeah, it fucking sucks. It's terrible. It's bad. Con controversial opinion. AIDS is bad. <laughs> yeah. Controversial opinion on right good. Um, <laughs> but from that, let's see. Who else did we have written down? Ha yes, Harley. Yes, buddy. Chill. He's very excited about this. Do we want to talk about Judy Lindell Ray? Sure, sure. And then after her, I, I know who I'd uh, want to move on to it. Uh, All right. But uh, okay, Judy Lind. Okay, here, here, here. So Just because Judy there was Lindell a little Ray. bit of a controversy with her telling, basically posthumously telling the Hugos to go fuck themselves from beyond the grave, which <laughs> I think is bit, very yeah. cool, which I think is extremely cool. I do too. I wasn't there at the time, of course, but there, there are still uh, a lot of people um, alive. People are who, still who mad. Which rocks. Yeah. That means it's a it's king shit. That's a baller <laughs> move. Good for her. Yeah, there are still a, a lot of people alive and, and in the field who who were at that that Hugo ceremony in in nineteen eighty, I guess eighty six. But anyway, Judy Lynn Del Rey. She was uh, an important editor in science fiction. She started at Galaxy Magazine in nineteen sixty five and became its associate editor in nineteen sixty nine. And, uh, and from there, she made the jump to book publishing in 1973 when she was hired by Ballantine Books to, uh, to take over their science fiction line. A year later, she brought her husband into the company. I think her, her maiden name was Benjamin, but uh, she married prominent science fiction writer Lester Del Rey in 1971. So like I said, in 1974, she brought Lester into the company. Ballantine Books. And then in 1977, she formed Del Rey Books as an imprint within Ballantine Books. And, you know, of course, Del Rey, still with us today, still one of the big science fiction imprints. Del Rey Books is named after her. It's not named after her husband, Lester. That's a, a common misconception. It, it was one that I held until I did research for this. So it's, it's named after her. Good for um, her. 
Yeah, no, she 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 was a great editor. She revitalized Ballantine's science fiction line. She had a gift for marketing science fiction and fantasy books to a wide audience, and a lot of her books were bestsellers. According to uh, the SF Encyclopedia Online, at the time of her death, she in the, in nineteen eighty six she had become the the dominant figure in in U.S. genre publishing. If you've ever read a Star Wars book, those all come out from Delray Books, and that's because of Judy Lynn. She was instrumental in obtaining the rights to publish Star Wars novels before the first movie was released. So that oh, was wow. Yeah, quite the She must have felt movie. very smart about that. <laughs> I bet she did. And uh part of the reason that I, I, I brought her up, not just because she was an important editor, but she also was well had a had a I guess you could say had a, a disability. She was born with dwarfism and uh, and apparently from what I read, she was frequently in, in, in pain from, uh, from her condition. Just something interesting to, to note. It's not something that you might, you know, know right. just off the bat. It's one of these things that, especially now with the passage of time, it's hidden or obscured, but yeah. worth noting that, to, that, that she overcame this. She suffered a, uh, like I, I said, she, she passed away and unfortunately very young. She was only uh, 43 years old. She uh, so suffered. She suffered a brain hemorrhage and uh, then died a few months later. Um, Dang. Yeah. But like like you mentioned, a bit of a posthumous controversy. So the Hugo Awards, they have a Hugo for Best Editor. And uh, the year that she died, they awarded her one posthumously. But her husband, Lester, turned it down on her behalf. As it I've uh, heard it, heard it told me, I think something closer to his exact words was something along the lines of that, of that she would have objected to receiving this award just because she had died. The way I've heard it told to me, he, he basically said, it's like, hey, you never bothered to give her this award when she was alive. So don't bother doing it now just because she's yeah. dead. Right. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. Like, oh, you only appreciate me when I'm gone. Fuck you. Right, yeah. <laughs> Although I, I will say that I think he was he was right to to do that. Best editor Hugo hardly ever goes to or hardly ever went to to book editors. Mm. It um Yeah, it seems like it tends to go to magazine editors. Yes. Well, the best editor Hugo only started in uh, I think nineteen seventy three. Before that, the award mm. was best professional magazine, right? So you oh, know it was, okay. it was right. Yeah. So that's what it came out of. Um Sometimes I, I went... do feel I do feel that magazines the editor has a much stronger presence than a novel. Yeah. If you're a regular reader of a magazine, you probably know who the head editor is. I don't know who edited my favorite novel. I have no idea. I don't right. know their name. Of course, yeah, and and that's by design. If you're reading a magazine, like you're reading it partially for the editor's taste, it's their vision for the magazine. They have a very public-facing role. Book editors. They're supposed to be kind of invisible so that you can focus on the author of the work. Right. Every once in a while, it went to somebody who wasn't a magazine editor, like I think Terry Carr. He was an anthologist and a book editor at Ace who won it once or twice. But it would have been uncommon for it to go to a book editor. But yeah, big ball move from, from Lester yeah. Del Rey. Yeah. I think that's kind of cool, though. Yeah. People are like, fuck you, fuck your statue. <laughs> That's kind of neat. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about some some 
diverse IPOC writers coming in the late 60s, early 70s. I mean, we already talked about Samuel R. Delaney, who's, who was awesome. You mentioned these were visual artists, I think, Leo and Diane Dillon. Yes, I included them because it was a surprise to me. Leo and Diane Dillon were, um, well, Diana, I think, is, is still alive, but they, they were artists book cover artists starting out in the in the 1960s That's they cool. did the the cover art and the interior illustrations for dangerous visions edited by harlan ellison mm. so so i knew their names from that but you know i just kind of assumed they were white but then when i was reading a uh, an interview with uh, with nalo hopkinson from either the late 90s or the early 2000s she mentioned the dillons and said that that Leo Dillon was Trinidadian, I, I just thought to myself, like, oh, really? I, I had no idea. I mean, just from the name Leo Dillon, I, I wouldn't exactly expect that, that he was black, but he was. So they were a husband and wife duo. He's black. She's white. They were an illustration team. Leo was born. They were born a week apart from each other in 1933. Leo passed away in 2012. He was born in East New York to Trinidadian immigrants. And Diane Dillon uh, was born on the opposite coast in California. They met while they were both attending the Parsons School of Design in New York City in the mid-50s. Apparently, they were instant arch rivals from what I read. <laughs> Enemies of, to lovers. And uh, I wanted to talk about them just because, you know, I I just thought it was so interesting that, I, you know, I had no idea that uh, that that he was a, a diverse artist um that's you know, really I feel cool like, yeah i feel like that's one of the ways that it's easy to think that there was no diversity in older science fiction obviously there's instances of overt erasure right but some of the times like this it's not that the person's erased it's just it, that you don't know who drew the cover yeah. right yeah you just don't know it's not immediately go, that's a nice cover that's pretty good right yeah mm. a lot of the times it can be tough to tell hardly anything about somebody just from their name and yeah. i imagine that it could be that way for other people so they were yeah. very big uh yeah i'm looking at examples of their work they did a cover for wrinkle in time the yep. last unicorn these are huge books yep yep the original it's really beautiful work too it's really great they Damn, these are nice covers they were very uh, interesting as artists. Yeah, they, uh, yeah. They worked in a number of different techniques and styles over the years. They never specialized in any one thing. Their art kind of morphs with the times and also changes for the to meet the needs of the individual subject. They did the original covers for The Left Hand of Darkness and A Wizard of Earthsea. Oh, hell yeah. The Snow Queen. Also, in later times, the original covers for the Sabriel books by Garth Nix. But yeah, so just very, like, very big artists, not just within the science fiction field. I mean, just within American commercial art, they've done a lot of work. They've illustrated tons of different children's books, ad art, Christmas cards, record albums, movie posters. They're among the most respected commercial artists in the country. They started doing a lot of... Um, covers of Ace Doubles books in the 60s and 70s after they met Ace editor Terry Carr, who they met through their friend Harlan Ellison. They won the Hugo Award in 1971 for Best Professional Artist, 
Leo was the first black man to win the Hugo in this category. Wow. Uh, although not the first black person to to win a Hugo, any Hugo overall. That honor goes to Samuel R. Delaney, who won the Hugo in 1970 for Best Short Story. The story in cons- was time considered as a helix of semi-precious stones, oh. if anybody is, is interested. But still, first black man to, to win a, a Best Artist Hugo. And uh, Diane was the first woman to receive a Hugo Award in the uh, the Best Professional Artist category. And actually, she was the only woman to win the Hugo for Best Professional Artist until 2014. Whoa. Yeah, that <laughs> oh my was God. a big gap. People Oof. were unhappy about this in around 2013 and 2014. Yeah, geez, that is it, a long gap. Yeah, especially considering <laughs> the amount, the number of... Uh, of of female cover artists at this time, Jill Bauman, others. I, I didn't make a list, but there were a lot. They're also uh, Leo and Diane Dillon are still the only artist team to win the Hugo Award for Best Professional Artist. Oh. They received a World Fantasy Lifetime Achievement Award in two thousand eight. They're not just famous within the genre; they're mainstream. American artist famous. They also won the the Caldecott Award oh, wow. two years in a row. Oh wow! Uh, yeah, that's the, a huge the children's book right. award. Yeah, huge deal. Right, it's, it's the yeah, Caldecott that's massive. Award. Yeah, so they so they won it in 1976 and again in 1977 for the books "Why Mosquitoes Buzz in People's Ears." And, I remember that book when I was a kid. Oh, really? I've never yeah. read it. Yeah. Oh. And and the other book was called Ashanti to Zulu African Traditions. The, their children's books that they did, they tended to feature people from all different ethnicities and, and different cultural heritages, which, of course, at the time, uncommon. It's trailblazing work. Yeah. Leo Dillon was the first black artist to win the Caldecott Award. Whoa. Uh, yeah. They, they've also won several Coretta Scott King Awards, which is an award for books for children by African-Americans that reflect the African-American experience. That's um, cool. Yeah. And they're still, to this day, the only artists to win the Caldecott Medal back to back. That's really cool. Yeah. So, you know, it's like gorgeous I said. It's gorgeous art. I, I can't really describe it because this is an audio podcast and I don't really know how to talk about visual art besides it's pretty. But it is, it is pretty. It is very, really, these covers. It's interesting because I grew up with a lot of these covers because that was, we had the like 1970s and 1980s editions of a lot of these classic sci-fi books in, in my house. So it's so interesting finding out like, oh, that's who drew these because I, I, I grew up with that. I grew up with that copy of Wrinkle in Time. Awesome. Yeah, I, uh, I I missed a lot of this. So so in researching it, it, it was a lot of fun to to see some of their work. It is really striking and really beautiful, and I wish we still had covers that looked like these because these are really cool. Just one of the ways when uh, how things used to be better. Yeah, I I I hope we get a revival in interesting cover art because oh gosh, I would like that. I've heard that the reason that. they do that now is just that the bland Amazon cover- thumbnails, right? Yeah, that yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's yeah. just easier to to see and read as a as a thumbnail. Yeah, it's a shame. Yeah, I don't know. I still don't buy that as the whole reason. 
Yeah, I don't know either. It's probably like, just I, I, easier. I think you can probably make stuff that's easy to scan and thumbnail, but that is still compelling. There's a yeah. way to do minimalism and simplicity that still looks really good. And what we got now of I'm I'm going to slap some text on a stock photo is not that good. Not good at all. It's not that good. It's not good. I don't like that. Or here's a sword. Here's a picture of a sword. Okay. It's got to be a little bit better than just a sword. Here's a picture of a sword and the title written in a column. Okay. All right. That's fine. Do you mind if I, uh, if I pick the next one? Yeah, sure. All right. All right. So, you know how I said that, unfortunately, there really aren't that many black science fiction writers in the history of the field. You can, you can really almost count them all on, on one hand, maybe two hands. But so if I was going to say to you, name me a black male science fiction writer who published books in the 1960s, who would you say? I mean, I'd say Samuel R. Delaney. Right, because he's the only one, right? Right. <laughs> No, there's no. one other guy. Hell yeah. I'd never heard of him before in my life. Gordon told me about him when I was asking him for, for people. So he knew about him and he told me. So there's not one black. There are two black male science fiction writers from the Yay. 1960s. This guy is really obscure. I, I'm I'm kind of jazzed to talk about him because... Yeah. I really had never heard of him before in my entire Ooh. life. He's 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 obscure. Okay. His name is John M. Fawcett. Sadly dead. He died back in 2003 when he was only 59. So born in in 1943. He published four science fiction novels in the late 1960s and early 1970s. Crown of Infinity and Age of Ruin, both in 1968, these uh, these were ace doubles. So they were, they, each of them was paired with another book within the same book. So I don't know if you've ever, have you ever seen an ace double before? I don't know. They're pretty cool. They were this thing that ace books did back in the 60s, mostly in the 60s. I think they did it into the 70s as well, where they would take two short novels and print them together in the same book flipped over so you'd pick up the book and you'd read the first book right book a and it would stop in more or less the middle of the book and then you could flip that book over and read a whole other book so it was two books in one printed back to back two completely different books huh that's kind of yeah. cool yeah yeah it, it, it was a neat thing it died out and um nobody's ever really been able to bring it back as a, a marketing concept it was just a neat thing from that time his other two books his other two science fiction novels they're a um a book and its sequel the warriors of terra and the siege of earth and he also published a, a mainstream novel called disco hustle disco 19, hustle yeah in 1978 nice. I, I wrote down disco hustle's book tagline a Super Saturday Midnight Madness at the Hottest Black Disco. Hell yeah. So th so that's his work. He also self-published a, uh, a collection of science fiction stories in 2002, shortly before he died, called Black Science Fiction. And hmm. uh, in 2001, prior to that, he published his only science fiction short story in Artemis Magazine. That story was called Pets. Hmm. He died in 
January 2003, his obituary in Locus magazine revealed that he was black. Or, well, rather, I guess his collection from 2002 uh, would have publicly revealed that. But I think Locus magazine at that time would have had a much wider reach. It would have gotten more traction. He died in his home alone. um, Ah, jeez. Yeah, in New York. He lived alone. His story's kind of sad, actually, in, in terms of publishing. It's a little disappointing. So he was born in Harlem. In 1943, he studied chemistry at the Polytechnic Institute of Brooklyn, and he also studied filmmaking and writing at NYU's School of Continuing Education. Oh, wow. And he was working in a law office at the time of his death. All this stuff that I'm, I'm pulling it from, I'm pulling it from his Locus obituary, which was from the March 2003 issue of Locus, as well as several different website articles. You type in his name, John M. Fawcett. The M stands for Matthew. You can find some things about him, including he, he does have a, a short Wikipedia page and, uh, and also the introduction to his collection of short stories is on the internet, and that was very useful for biographical details. He wrote many more novels than the four that he published, but all of these went unpublished. He believed, according to his own words, like I said, he, he, he was African-American, believed that this was mostly because he was writing science fiction novels with black protagonists that mm-hmm. dealt with the black experience. His actual science fiction novels that were published have been called Routine. For whatever it's worth, Crown of Infinity has a pretty good Goodreads score across 33 ratings. It's a 4.09. That is good. But then Crown again, Infin- it's Goodreads, yeah. so yeah, taken with a grain of salt. So, Crown of Infinity is a space opera, and The Age of Ruin is a post-disaster odyssey. Okay. And then uh, his Peacemaker's duology, the, those those other two books that I mentioned, they are about aliens invading Earth and being fought to a negotiated truce. Hmm. Uh, it's, uh, I guess, sort of a commentary on the Vietnam War. SF Encyclopedia doesn't mention his race. Like I said, yeah, he's, he's the second black science fiction writer after Samuel Delaney of, of any gender because he predates Octavia Butler. What else can I say about him? So this I'm getting now from the introduction to his collection. He was a big fan of science fiction growing up, and he wrote his first science fiction novel while he was in college. This is The Warriors of Terra, the Peacemakers duology, which eventually did get published. But so he mailed it off unsolicited to Ace Books, and the editor of Ace Books, the head editor of Ace Books, Donald Walheim, rejected it, but he sent it back with a letter. He thought that the book was too complicated, but he wanted to know if Fawcett had anything else. Oh, okay. Yeah. So uh, in response to Walheim asking for more material, Fawcett just wrote a whole other book. Wow. The Crown, yeah, The Crown of Infinity. I don't know if it's all that apparent from the book itself, just from like a couple of reviews of it that I read. But according to Fawcett, it is an allegory of black revenge. Uh, it's Ooh. about the remnants of humanity who plan revenge on the aliens who conquered Earth and slaughtered its inhabitants. So, you know, makes sense, right? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So that's cool. So so Walheim published two of his books, Crown of Infinity and uh, and The Age of Ruin. 
And uh, I, I just wanted to, to note here, just to put a feather in the cap of legendary science fiction editor Donald Walheim. Like I said, there are only, as far as I know, or I think as far as anybody knows, there are only two black science fiction writers in the 1960s, Delaney and Fawcett. And Donald Walheim was publishing the both of them at Ace because Delaney's first eight books were all from Ace books. Wow. So good for him. He was publishing two black science fiction writers at a time yeah, when, when literally no one else was apparently. Yeah, exactly. Wow. That's <clears throat> wild. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he would have also published, uh, Jessica Salmonson's books. Cause he was, he was still in charge of Daw books at that time in the early eighties. I don't think he, uh, wow. I don't think he died until the mid eighties and there is more, but we'll get, we'll get to that later. So, like I said, the story of Fawcett's writing career is pretty sad and frustrating. It's, it's probably not that different from, you know, a lot of forgotten writers and writers who never even got that far because they were never published in the first place. This again, I, I'm, I'm taking this again from, uh, Fawcett's story collection introduction. Fawcett felt that the field is white oriented. Pretty right, I would say at that yeah, time, right? Very clearly, especially <clears throat> if there's literally only two. Yeah. Black so, writers. Right. So after the, the two novels that he published with Ace, he wanted to write a black science fiction novel. So he pitched one to Walheim, and Walheim told him to write it. So Fawcett wrote a black swordsman adventure novel, and he gave it to him, but Walheim read it and said that he couldn't publish it. Yeah. Yeah, now, I don't know why that is. Any number of, of publishing or business reasons why an editor would, would turn down a book. And, uh, and I should, uh, I'll, I'll note again that about a decade after this, at the helm of his own company, Daw Books, Walheim did publish Charles R. Saunders' Black Sword and Sorcery Imaro novels. So I don't know why Walheim turned down this book, but for whatever reason he did. So at any rate, Fawcett felt betrayed by this and uh, apparently ended their professional relationship in oh, a, no. uh, a heated fashion. Oh, no. Um, yeah, so he was able to publish two more science fiction novels after that. They came out from a, a company I've never heard of called Belmont Books and the mainstream disco novel. But after that, he basically just spent the next 20 or 30 years writing books and getting rejected by all the New York publishers. He made the point, it, it's a salient point that I, I want to mention, because like I said, his work seems to have been fairly routine. But in his introductory essay, he does say that, you know, by the 1990s, there were a few black science fiction and fantasy writers who were gifted writers, but there weren't any black science fiction writers like him, just workmanlike authors, Right. They write their books and they never win awards and they're never bestsellers, but you know, they love science fiction and they have their readership, just like there are plenty of white writers like that. So, right, you know, right. Yeah. Like that to get ahead, to, to make get anywhere in the field as a black writer, you've got to be a rock star. You can't just be right. average, whereas a white guy writer can just be okay yeah. and do all right. Like you've <laughs> got to be better than everyone else just to get as far, half as far as they do, which is. Not fair. Yeah. And so in the 1990s, he shifted to trying to write short stories just because they took less time. And so like I said, his, his career was kind of plagued by bad luck. Oh, no. When I, when I read this in his, his essay, it really kind of hurt because he, um, 
he heard about Cherie Thomas's Dark Matter anthology that I mentioned last episode, right. Dark Matter, a century of speculative fiction from the African diaspora. It, it was a mix of, of older black science fiction works that weren't specifically in the field, but looking at them with time could say, that's a time travel story, that's science fiction, right? So right. it was a mix of stories like that, and then work from contemporary authors at that time. It was a big showcase of black science fiction. It's an important book. So Fawcett heard about Dark Matter, and he contacted Cherie about submitting something to it, but by that point, he was too late. The, um, no. the submission deadline had already been long past. So, oh, uh, no. yeah, so we missed out on being part of this big landmark anthology, and he basically got left out of history. Damn. And then by the time the second book came out in 2005, you know, obviously he was already dead by that point. It's just sad that he died when he did. He was relatively young. You know, who knows? He might have found some success as an older man. We'll never know. It's just too bad. Yeah. Yeah. What a bummer. Yeah. I do have some more things, one or two more, because I actually, I was so fascinated by this guy. I had to track down one of his books and uh, I read it over the summer. So I read The Age of Ruin. It wasn't bad. It, it was okay. I have to admit that if I had just like seen it at like a book sale somewhere and didn't know anything about it, I think I would have just passed right on by, like I pass on by a lot of things, but I know who he is. I wanted to check him out. I was able to get it on, on Abe books. There, there are some other copies and it's pretty good. So it's, like I said, it's a, it's a post-disaster odyssey. It's one of those books where it takes place way, way, way in the future after some big nuclear holocaust. And it's this guy who has to <clears throat> go on this adventure to solve a thing and like that hardly even matters so he just goes from like place to place to place to place to place and you see this whole big world that he inhabited and uh it was kind of funny too there there were a couple of of funny peep moments the the main character meets this he goes to this city of fish people who are these little fish people they're like two to three feet tall and when he first meets them he comes upon them like herding cattle and he's like wow they're like really far off in the distance and then he gets closer and he realizes oh no they're they're much closer than i thought yeah it's just they're tiny (laughs) and the cattle they're herding are tiny and they're not riding horses they're riding dogs with saddles on them oh that's really cute yeah, I know, right? And the first two fish people that he meets, uh, the first one's name is Good Eaten. And the second one's name is Well Done. Oh. Oh <laughs> I know, God. it's just it's oh, funny, no. right? I honestly really I honestly like this book. The prose isn't always great and the plot is is pretty slapdash, especially towards the like the last ten or fifteen pages of the book when the action gets really, really compressed. And the characters are all pretty thin, but it was imaginative. It was it was it was really imaginative and it had a lot of energy to it. And I had fun reading it. And also it's short. It's really not very long. It's like maybe 150 pages long. Ooh. So I think it's worth I think it's worth tracking down a copy of of the age of ruin if if you can grab a hold of it i think it flows i think i think we can excuse a lot if we consider that it was the set his second book he had published his first book earlier that year he probably wrote it in a very short amount of time yeah. when he was like 24 or 25 
but yeah, I, I was just I was excited to uh, to to bring him up because, like I said, he is he is truly obscure. I I don't think really very many people at all know about him, and I certainly had no idea yeah. that he existed I, until I, I started this process. Him. Yeah, never heard of him before. John M. Okay. Fawcett. It's yeah. Uh, yeah, it's it it's too bad, but um, yeah, that's a but, bummer. But it's a cool book. Yeah, yeah. All right, so you noted a Chinese-American writer named William Franking Wu. Yes, he is a later writer. We're talking now, I guess you could, well, I think he started writing in the 70s, but yeah. I guess you could almost call him more of like a cyberpunk uh, type of writer. Ooh. So William Franking Wu, a Chinese-American writer, I included him because, again, I had never heard of him. And to be honest, I didn't really even know that science fiction had any Chinese American writers before, I don't know, let's say like Ken Liu mm -hmm. or somebody like that, like uh, somebody from this new century. Right. I just, yeah, yeah. I didn't know he existed, but he was there. So he was born Chinese American. He was born in Kansas city, Missouri. He's written 13 novels and a collection of short stories. Uh, a lot of his novels take place in, um, I guess you could say shared worlds. He he wrote Isaac Asimov's uh, Robot Robot World. Overall, he's published more than seventy short stories. Wow! So his first genre story was called "By the Flicker of the One-Eyed Flame." It appeared in uh, the anthology Andromeda Two in nineteen seventy-seven. He attended Clarion in nineteen seventy-four. And he made his first pro sale in 1975 when he was 24. He joined SIFWA in uh, 1977. Like I said, he grew up in Kansas City, Missouri, and his father was a neurosurgeon who was the first non-white doctor to break the color line in the Medical Society of Kansas City. Whoa. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's really yeah. cool. He also, uh, uh, William did. He managed to live off of his writing income until the late nineties, which uh, that I, is an I almost feel. Yeah, I almost feel like it's a bigger accomplishment. <laughs> just, um, just as a yeah. joke. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and writing short fiction too. Yeah, short fiction and tie-in novels. Um, oh wow! Yeah. Yeah. Until uh, he became a copy editor for a newspaper. So, like I said, he he wrote several novels in the Foundation slash Robot universe. He wrote for George R. R. Martin's Wild Card universe. He has one standalone novel called Master Play from 1987, and he uh, also wrote a story <clears throat> in the Star Wars anthology Tales from Jabba's Palace. If anybody's read that, I haven't, but I kind of remember it being around when I was a kid. Also of, of interest, um, he he has a PhD. Wow! And uh, he he published a nonfiction book. It's a more general version of his PhD thesis. The book is called the Ye <clears throat> sorry the Yellow Peril: Chinese Americans in American Fiction, eighteen fifty to nineteen forty. This was published in oh. nineteen eighty two, and it is an extended and judicious nonfiction survey of American Yellow Peril literature. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of that. When I was looking for a really fun, pulpy sci-fi cover to use as the header image for the women of the pulp era episode, there was there was a lot of that. There was a lot of like really kind of gross, yellow par peril, kind of stereotypical people menacing white women. I mean, 
yeah. Flash Gordon, you have the bad guys, Emperor Ming, who is absolutely a yellow peril type villain with a right. Fu Manchu mustache and shit like that. It's the role of, of the way Chinese or just Asian people in general were portrayed in speculative fiction until quite recently was, was pretty fucking gross. Yeah, it's uh, it's not good. It's and, not uh, great. I, yeah, I feel like there's still a little bit of that. Like I've noticed, I have noticed, and I'm I'm grousing about the present day, that the Hugo Awards, the Nebulas, ten, the categories for like best comic tend to ignore manga. Hmm. But when like a white American dude does a book about Mecca or Kaiju or something like very Southeast Asian or something, I, I know I'm referring to Japan and not China. I know the difference between those. Please don't yell at me. But just in general, like when a white dude does something Southeast Asian inspired, it gets a lot of hype over here, but mm -hmm. the thing itself coming from written by Southeast Asian authors were like, nah, no thanks. Yeah. I, that kind of bugs me. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't really follow the graphic novel categories. Yeah. You're right. Manga like it's is very incredibly weird popular that, that and influential. It's super weird that manga does not get nominations because that's such a massively popular art you know, if form I, if these I were, days. Every teenager is reading this stuff. If I were being charitable, I think I would chalk it up to just manga not being within the tradition of the American science fiction field. Not so much today, but you can still see it. It really does have its roots in... American science fiction magazine fiction of yeah. the last century. So it's just manga's just outside of that tradition. So I can I can see it being overlooked. It's kind of the same way how if you're looking at strictly science fiction type things, J.R.R. Tolkien doesn't show up very much in in that sort of consideration in the field like The Lord of the Rings. Mm -hmm. None of those books were nominated for a Hugo in the 50s because, mm -hmm. you know, like, why, why would they be? It's fantasy, but also he's British, right? So yeah, I, I guess I just mean that you look back at a certain period and feel like, my God, you know. How did they ignore this, was, this? Yeah, how did they ignore this? It's so big. It's enduring. It stood the test of time. But, but it's just it just wasn't part of their concern. It just it wasn't things that don't come out of that specific tradition just tend to not really fit in to the hugos um i guess even today to a certain yeah. degree but yeah you know you'd think especially from the graphic novel part i mean there, there are so many there's so many different asian graphic novels but oh well Why don't we start shifting gears and start talking a little briefly, because this is more recent, so it's within living memory probably of many of our listeners. And But let's talk about the 80s and the 90s. Let's talk about some style or industry trends in the 80s or 90s. There's a shift, I think, toward visual media in, in terms of uh, speculative fiction storytelling. I, I, I You definitely start seeing more of a Japanese influence on American pop culture during this time, even if it's just sort of blindly awkwardly copying the aesthetics it, it's kind of interesting you see this cultural influence going back and forth where u.s body horror influences japanese cinema and then japanese cinema influences american writers like i'm mm -hmm. i'm thinking how 
could we have the explosion in American cyberpunk that we had without works like Akira and Tetsuo the Iron Man? Just these I, incredible works of, I don't know, technological body horror, just completely fantastic, weird-ass movies. And I, I also see a, in a lot of cyberpunk, there's this kind of irony. There's a real sense of postmodernism. There's a, a lot of stories about consumerism and media oversaturation. And it's kind of interesting because you see it in you see it in sci-fi and fantasy and it's actually for once running alongside what trends that we see in very sort of serious quote-unquote highbrow literary culture like works like Don DeLillo's White Noise and David Foster Wallace's Infinite Jest both of which I have tried and failed to finish I also failed failed to finish Infinite Jest I I tried I I tried 200 pages into it and it's so long I can't yeah. It's too much book, which, which in a way I think both of them kind of have a sci-fi premise, but they don't really get filed under sci-fi. I mean, Infinite right. Jest, as far as I can tell, I didn't get that far in, is about a videotape that you get so addicted to it kills you, right? Is it? I don't. I tried reading. Is it that like what it's about? I didn't ago. get that far. I have been I told that that's what it's about. So for all I know, that's what it's about. I must not have gotten that far. <laughs> but um, but one of my oldest friends. It's one of his favorite books, and and he was the reason that I, I I tried it. And he told one of the things he told me was that like in the book, life has become so corporatized and commercialized that the years don't have numbers anymore. It's just each year has like a different corporate sponsorship. So you right, know, it's, it's like, like year the, of the year of the tampon, year right. of the stuff like that. Yeah, year of the Procter and Gamble moist wipe or whatever the heck it is. Yeah. So, so I thought that was pretty cool. But yeah, that's one of the most science fictional things I've ever heard in my entire life. You can't get more science fiction-y than that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, which which I find is interesting. I, I kind of feel like in culture a lot, sci- sci-fi fantasy op- occupied for a very long time this very separate sphere. And here in the 90s, there's such a similarity between that and the work that's getting treated as as very serious as literary work. Yeah, well, that's the science fiction ghetto for you. you know, <laughs> writers have complained about it and also loved it for decades, that that tension between right. genre and lit. Like how Kurt Vonnegut, would, he said something like, the problem with being labeled a science fiction author is that people put it in a low drawer and then people, other people like to use that drawer as a urinal. Yeah, well, I mean, he was right. It's yeah. that 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 was the the feeling at the time, and the echoes of that are are still with us even today. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But anyway, let's talk about some more diverse authors. We see it looks like even more of an opening up of diversity, especially like LGBTQ representation, as we enter the '80s and the '90s. Yes, I I was. Very glad that that we decided to sort of arbitrarily cut off at 1990, 1991, because if we had gone up, if I had gone up until 2000, like just for LGBT people alone, I, oh my God, I would have had so much more work to do. I couldn't have done it. There, yeah, there we're kind of looking for um, it in the era in which people don't expect to see it really yeah, is um, what we're looking for. There's a perception that like up until 1990, you know, 1999. No gay person ever wrote sci-fi, and we're like, no, it's not right. true. And, and and even even older writers, older lesbian writers like Joanna Russ, I, I didn't have time 
to do a write-up on, but she was a, a very important feminist writer, the female man, when it changed. We Who Are About To, which if I could just like pitch you a book for a second, it's it's a great book. It's from 1978. It's really more like a long novella. It's very short, but it's about uh, a small party of people on a spaceship. They, they get lost and they crash land on a barren planet. So it starts out like the people are like, well, okay, we got to rebuild that old 1950s. Like, okay, right. let's get down to restarting the, the population. But she very swiftly turns that on its head because it's told from the perspective of the one woman in the group who says Oof. like, no, this is insane. What's going to happen to your kids the first time that they have a toothache? There's nothing here but the seven of us. The only sensible thing for us to do is to commit suicide. Oh, my it's, God. It's such a cool book. Oh, my That's God. That's brutal. Yeah. And uh, the prose is fantastic. Can I just read you a paragraph? Yeah, do it. Okay, this is, this is just from the first page, all right, <clears throat> of We Who Are About To, About To Die, and so on. We're all going to die. The Sahara is your backyard. So's the Pacific Trench. Die there, and you won't be lonely. On Earth, you are never more than 13,000 miles from anywhere, which, as the man said, is a tough commute. But the rays of light from the scene of your death take little more than a tenth of a second to go anywhere. We're nowhere. We'll die alone. This is space travel. And then it, I mean, I could read the whole book, but it's, it's really great. Nice. That sounds um, rad. Yeah. And I think Vonda McIntyre, I, I think also was a, a lesbian. She was an important writer. She founded Clarion West in the, the, the first iteration of Clarion mm. West in the, the early 1970s, being inspired by the, the original Clarion Workshop. Her novel, Dream Snake, in, I think, 1977, won both the Nebula and the Hugo Award. She also won another Nebula in 1998, Of the Moon and the Sun, I think is the, the title of that. So she's a good writer, an important writer who also, sadly, is no longer with us. Mm -hmm. I also didn't have time to really do anything with Nicola Griffith, but she's a, she's a very important lesbian writer who... Got her start publishing in the early 90s. Her two early science fiction novels, Ammonite and Slow River, she writes L LGBT protagonists. She's outspoken. She's a very good writer. She also wrote, oh gosh, I think almost 10 years ago now. I haven't gotten around to reading it yet, but I have it. It's a book about 7th century England. It's called Hild. H-I-L-D hmm. is in like St. Hildegard. I forget the rest of it, but but yeah, so she's an important writer who kind of fell outside the, the, the scope of my of my research. But yeah, like you said, oh, Jeff Ryman, he's more contemporary. He's a gay writer. He started publishing in the, uh, the late 1980s. He's written several books, some of them more recent, the early 2000s. The Child Garden is one of them. He tends to write... I think he even called it mundane science fiction, which is an odd <laughs> moniker to put on it, but it's it's more like science fiction that's very close to the the present moment. It was just a few things changed here and there, but but he's a good prose stylist as well. He's had a bunch of stories published in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, so I didn't have time really to to do anything about him. I didn't even this was the big one. I talked about him a little bit, but I didn't go in depth 
on David Gerald, and he's one of the most important and prominent gay writers in science fiction that that there is. It's just there's there's just too much to 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 go over. Like you said, there's there's a lot of broadening of of identities in in the field in the in the eighties and the nineties. Yeah, that is that that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Let's see. One of the names you had written down here was, and this is perhaps more toward the 70s, Russell Bates. Yes. Russell Bates, he was more of a television writer. He was interesting, and I thought it was important to talk about him. Russell Bates is, or was rather, Native American. He was a member of the Kiowa Nation, and he attended Clarion in its second year. I I was turned on to him. I was rereading parts of Storyteller by Kate Wilhelm. It's her memoir of Clarion, her experience of teaching at Clarion for like 25 years. And it's also a um, a how-to book for writing. It's a neat little book. But so she mentioned Russell Bates and that he was Kiowa. So I, I decided to look into him. He served in the Air Force in the 1960s and uh, he suffered some kind of accident that left him hospitalized for nine months. Jeez. Yeah. So while he was there, he didn't have a lot of time. So he just started writing and writing and writing. And one of the things that he wrote was a spec script for Star Trek. It didn't sell, but it did bring him to the attention of one of the uh, one of the writers on the on the show at that time, D.C. Fontana, or should I say Dorothy Catherine Fontana, who was herself an important writer for Star Trek. So it came to so that brought him to her attention, and she helped him get into a, a Writers Guild program for minority writers and, and hired him to write for Star Trek, the animated series in the, uh, the mid-70s. He, Bates, co-wrote with, with David Wise. David Wise was also from Clarion. They, they met at Clarion. They co-wrote the second season episode of the Star Trek animated series episode, How Sharper Than a Serpent's Tooth. This episode won an Emmy Award, which was the only Emmy that either the animated series or the original series won. It's the only the only Emmy. Um, uh, Henny has joined the chat. <laughs> hell, hello, Henny. That's who's crying right now. Oh. <laughs> um, she's mad because usually I give her her treat at this time and she's like, bitch, where's my treat? It's she's might have to wait. I don't know. You're gonna have to wait uh, a little bit, baby. I'm sorry. Gonna have to wait a little bit. Be patience. <laughs> so, besides winning an Emmy, uh, that episode of Star Trek is is interesting because Bates created the character Ensign Dawson Walking Bear, a Native American with Comanche ancestry. He was a big part of that episode. This isn't the first depiction of Native Americans on Star Trek, the the overall show. There were some in the right. original series, but he's the first Native American who's depicted as a crew member of the Starship Enterprise. So, you know, and it was a well-liked episode. Um, yeah, and I, looking back, I remember the I Am Kirok episode, the portrayal of Native Americans is not great. I, it's, it's I not guess thankfully good. I haven't seen that one. <laughs> it, it, it's unfortunate. It's right. pretty bad. I mean, well, it's of its time, you know? Yeah. Well, luckily, this one was a little bit better. Um, that's good. I'm glad. Yeah. So that's Bates' main claim to fame. He wrote some short stories in the in the 70s, only about seven. He appeared in an, an issue of 
FNSF uh, with his story, Right of Encounter. And he also sold a story to The Last Dangerous Visions, which, as we all know, was never published. Um, right. Well, actually, the, they the are going to... The Cursed Anthology. Right. Although, <laughs> apparently, it's it's going to get published posthumously in, in, in a few years. I don't know if this will be in it, hey. um, but there's there's no time to talk about The Last Dangerous Visions. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, like I said, he he was a, a TV writer. He, he had a uh, career writing for television. In a little documentary that I watched on him on YouTube, he said that he wrote for about 20 different TV shows, acted in in seven movies. He, he worked on MASH. He worked on All in oh. the Family, the original Battlestar Galactica, and uh, one of my dad's favorite shows, Kolchak the Night Stalker. Hell yeah. Yeah. And uh, he also went to Clarion West in addition to original Clarion. I guess you could do that back then. People didn't care. I, I don't think you can do that anymore. I don't know. Um, but yeah, just uh, an important Native American science fiction writer. I, I I wanted to bring him up. Yeah, that's cool. That's really accomplished. He was on like all the biggest shows of the 1970s. Yeah. The only thing missing is Columbo. Well, uh, one more thing. <laughs> no, one I, more I, thing. <laughs> I don't have I don't have anything else for 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 him. All right. So why don't we start wrapping, start winding down? Just just uh, any more writers of the 80s or 90s do you think we should really, really talk about before we go? Uh, yes. Oh, we um, got to talk about Betsy Mitchell, who took yes. the time to write us this wonderful letter. Right. So I I missed that. But before we, before we get to Betsy, I guess I want to talk about, I don't know if we'll have time for both of them. When yeah. I said that there weren't that many black science fiction writers, I think I've talked about almost all of them. The only ones that I haven't talked about are Stephen Barnes, who started writing in the 70s. He's been a full-time writer since 1980. Fairly famous, I guess you could say. He got his start writing stories, but a big help to him earlier in his career was, of all people, Larry Niven. Huh. Yeah, he Not of what um, I would expect he's known for being rather conservative, to put it mildly. Yes, yes, he has uh, said some things that uh, yeah that well, are that are extremely controversial. Again, to put it as diplomatically as I can possibly say it. Right. Yeah, but but to his credit, he mentored Stephen Barnes, and um, they they co-wrote a bunch of novels together. Which was good, not for for Barnes, not just from a a you know a craft perspective, but also from a, a financial perspective. As of two thousand three, he had written nine solo novels, some Star Trek books. He's been a bestseller. From the time that Samuel Delaney largely retreated from fiction writing in the mid nineteen seventies, Barnes was just about the only black male science fiction writer in the field. Yeah, so he said in in a, a two thousand three Locus interview. He talks about how lonely that felt and, you know, shying yeah, away, rough, man. Yeah. It's um, shying away from taking on black characters or, or black topics at that time. But in, in the early 2000s, he did write a pair of novels, um, Lion's Blood and Zulu Heart, that flip the history of Africa and Europe where uh, blacks are dominant and uh, and white people are the slaves. And actually, I think I think Betsy published those, so they're they're probably pretty good. He also wrote an episode of The Outer Limits. Um, Ooh, yeah, and like I said, New York Times bestseller. The other writer that I, I kind of wanted to talk about and go in depth a little bit on, also black, 
is uh, Charles Saunders. He was a black fantasy writer who died in, in 2020. He pioneered the sword and soul subgenre with his Amaro stories and novels. Basically, mm. it's it's sword and sorcery, but with with black characters and with uh, with African characters from a the settings and the themes have an African perspective as opposed to you know something like Conan, vaguely European, or, yeah, yeah, European, or you could say like Mediterranean, right? Or right. both of those combined. But this is is firmly African. Saunders was born in near Pittsburgh. He was drafted to fight in Vietnam, but instead he moved to Canada, where he lived for the rest of his life. Um, Hell yeah. Yeah. He was a civil servant and a teacher until 1989 when he became a journalist writing his own weekly column on African Nova Scotian life. He seems to have died in modest circumstances, let's say. He spent his last years alone in a small apartment and he didn't tell very many people about his his failing health. He started writing fantasy in 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 the 70s publishing his uh Imaro short stories in smaller magazines like the Canadian Fantasy the Canadian fanzine Dark Fantasy. That's where uh he got noticed. The editor Lynn Carter included that first Imaro story in his year's best fantasy stories, which was published by Daw, which is how Donald Walheim noticed Saunders and uh, eventually suggested to Saunders that he turn his short stories into a novel. So now that is three black science fiction fantasy writers that Donald Walheim published. Wow. Uh, yes. he pub So Daw published Imaro in 1981. It was Saunders' first novel. And um, some of the people that we've talked about or have been talking about, they illustrate just how people can be forgotten. And what I'm talking about is just sometimes people have bad luck in their careers, you know, like any white author. But just because there are so much fewer writers of whatever identity you want to talk about, it, it really hurts on a, on a big picture level. Hmm. And uh, John M. Fawcett had a lot of bad luck. And I think you could chalk that up to, to having a lack of support, a lack of mentors. He really seems like he was trying yeah. to do it all himself. Conversely, we see the opposite of that have a really positive effect with... Some successful um, black or P uh, POC writers. Octavia Butler was championed by Harlan Ellison earlier in her career. She was a Clarion grad. Russell Bates went to Clarion and had that Writers Guild Minority Writers program. Stephen Barnes was mentored by Larry Niven. These sorts of things make a difference. Yeah. Yeah. And um, like I said, bad luck is pretty much what happened to Charles Saunders. He just had bad luck. So Imaro was published in, in 1981. That's the, the first book in the trilogy. But unfortunately, so, you know, he got a good break by getting picked up and published by Daw. But then due to mistakes on the publisher's part and then later on his part, the books just never took off. What happened is that the first book got hurt by a lawsuit from the estate of Edgar Rice Burroughs. Oh, no. Walheim included a, uh, a quote from from Tarzan or, or something like that. He put a tagline on the cover of the book that read the epic novel of a black Tarzan. Oh. Yeah, which kind of no. stung Saunders because that's not what Imaro is. But Walheim probably thought like, well, hey, people like it'll Tarzan. if I put that on the cover. Yeah, like it'll, yeah. it'll sell better probably. I mean, natural enough to think that. But the Burroughs estate slapped them with a lawsuit. Oh, fuck. 
so they had to reprint the books with with a cover that didn't have that tagline on it which caused a one-month shipping delay which really hurt the sales of the first book because publishing operates on schedules right so all of a sudden now with that delay it didn't have the the publicity that it might have it didn't have the same shelf presence that it might have had so yeah it just it just hurt and uh it also had it had knock-on effects for the next book so Right, so, right. When, over, when your debut is such a mess, yeah. then the next one's not going to do too good either. Right, yeah, exactly. So Daw published three Amaro books, and like you said, the first one had problems, so it just it didn't sell well, right? So if book one doesn't sell to a lot of people, then book two isn't really going to do... It's not going to do better than book one because nobody's going to start with book two, Right. So it's just this diminishing effect, right? And the the other problem besides on the publisher side, Saunders made some mistakes. I, I, I read uh, in an interview that he gave that he took too long. He said that he took too long to write the second book. Oh, um, no. So the, the first book came out in 1981. The second book didn't come out until 1984. By that time, the first Amaro book was already out of print. So it's not even on the shelf. So even if you think, if you look at the second book, The Quest for Kush, and you think, oh, this seems kind of cool. Oh, I see it's the second book. Huh, I don't see book one anywhere. Well, I'm not going to start with book two. I guess I won't read it. And that, of course, hurt the third book, The Trail of Bohu, which came out in 1985. So it's just a lot of things piled up. And all three books, even though they were well-received critically and they had their fans, from a business perspective, they sold poorly enough that, that Daw stopped publishing him after the, the third book. So, you know, it's just just bad luck. So that, he, he did publish other things, but that was kind of like, that really kind of, that, that permanently hurt his career. He did publish a story in Dark Matter and... Uh, the first two Imaro books he was able to put back into print in the mid-2000s. It's actually a neat story. A fan of his from Australia wrote to Saunders asking if you know, he ever might finish the series, because there was more planned other than those, those three books. So Saunders became inspired to, to revisit the series. Oh. He reached out to Nightshade Books, and Nightshade Books did publish the republish the first two books. And I think he was able to either self-publish or small press publish the uh, the remaining novels in the series nice. yeah so that's good but but like i said just another case of of somebody who probably should have had a, a bigger career than he did and it's just a, a shame that he didn't just got screwed over by something totally beyond his control right yeah that um, sucks can i uh can i mention one one more yes. writer before we get okay. to betsy mitchell okay thank i, I appreciate you're gonna have it. another sore throat I can already feel it. I'm pretty dry. <laughs> it's all right. I wanted to bring up Misha Noga. She's an indigenous writer. She's of of she's an American. She's of mixed Nordic and um, Métis Native American ancestry. I think Kurt Schiller of Bloodknife might have first tipped me off about her because he was talking about 
at some point her obscure cyberpunk novel, Red Spider White Web, which I have a copy of. I was able to track it down. It looks pretty cool. It's like this weird experimental wild book. The right, I, I read like the first page and th there are some articles about it on the internet, like on tour.com. The writing style, it shifts from being kind of standard to being very odd and alienating, like the, hmm. the, the chapters shift in sections. It's like a bleak, vivid future of people on the margins. It was published in the United Kingdom in 1990 as a limited hardcover that had a foreword from respected British science fiction author Brian Aldiss. If it seems like your your sort of thing, you, like to, to, to anybody, like I said, there are there are articles about it that have excerpts on the internet. Actually, Tor.com did one or two of them that was very helpful. Surprising that there would be a helpful, interesting article from Tor.com, but this was from years ago when they were yeah. still good. I shouldn't say these things. Um, <laughs> but anyway, yes. yeah, but anyway, so it's it really does seem like a really cool book, like the sort of book that like only cool people know about, right? Hell yeah. Yeah, so it's a cyberpunk novel. I was able to get a copy from it's it was republished at some point by a small publisher called Wordcraft of Oregon. They're defunct now, but you can still buy whatever copies they have left in their warehouse, which is where I got it from. One of the cool things about it is that that I in reading about the book is that, you know, it really does seem to be about people on the margins. It's not about heroic people. It's about normal people who are caught in the system and have to try and live and, and, and scrape together with it. So I'm, I'm looking forward to reading it at some point. It did get some reviews. Uh, it was nominated for the Arthur C. Clarke Award in 1991. It was also given the Reader Con Small Press Award for Best Novel in 1991. Oh, nice. Yes. Unfortunately, the award is defunct. They only gave it out for five years from 87 to 92. Oh, that's such a bummer. And I just, I wanted to, I wanted to bring her up just because she just seems like a really cool person. She's a poet. She's a, a musician and a rancher. In her writing, she explores shamanic traditions in both her her Native American heritage and her Scandinavian heritage. That sounds really cool. She gave an interview where she was talking about her, her novel, and she said that she wanted to write a literary cyberpunk novel that was social commentary on religion and philosophy, art, the environment, all sorts of things. And uh, and at the time, she was learning a lot about Japanese culture and language. On some, She had some sort of like fellowship program mm. at um, whatever university was nearby to her. So a lot of that wound up in the novel as well. She's got some, a few poetry collections. They're like little little chapbooks. Under the name Michelle Chocolock, she was also an influential fiction editor at of the magazine New Pathways into Science Fiction and Fantasy, hmm. which was a semi-prozine that ran for about 20 issues in the, the late 80s, early 90s. And she also contributed interviews and attracted cyberpunk writers to this zine. According to the science fiction encyclopedia, it held a crucial place in the 80s by providing a market for an alternative view of, of science fiction. So that's cool. You know, yeah. So just just somebody to somebody to 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 look for, I, I would say this. This looks like a cool book. Yeah, she sounds awesome. <sighs> All right. Um, All right. <laughs> I think uh, th <laughs> there are some other about... people. 
but I think I got to leave them behind. Except to say Rick Bowes is a, a neat fantasy writer of more contemporary work and also a cool guy personally. He's a, a great storyteller. Um, I haven't seen him in a few years, but uh, I knew him the, the whole time that I was working for FNSF and, and he's a, a great guy, good pro stylist, fantasy writer. Also, he was at the Stonewall riots. That's sick. Yeah. Yeah. He was, he was there. So I, I just that's think that's cool. cool. I, that's I, extremely I figured, cool. I Did he throw a brick at a cop? That. I don't know. I should have asked him. God, I, I hope he threw a brick at a cop. That'd be so fucking cool. You got to buy someone's book if, if they threw a brick at a cop at Stonewall, man. He published a few novels in the in the 1980s, and he's published more in the 1990s and the, the 2000s. I think a lot of his work is short stories, collections, fix-up novels, things like that. I think he's won a Lambda Award or two. He's been nominated for nominated and, and won a lot of things. He, he's a good writer. But you wanted to... Well, I, I wanted to talk about betsy mitchell and i, I yeah we got to talk about betsy well. mitchell because she took the time to to write to respond and that was really really thoughtful right um so you wrote to her saying i, did. I know that you discovered nalo hopkinson minister faust and commissions sheree's uh Cherie thompson's first dark matter anthology are there any other black or poc writers you discovered or advanced the careers of that i don't know about Yes, I did. I did reach out to her. Um, and she said, I think I've been waiting to be asked this question my entire life. Like, oh, <laughs> oh when sweetie. I work the decade and a half that, oh no, that, that would be 15 years. The, the, the 10 years and six months that I worked for FNSF, a couple of times over that period, Gordon mentioned once or twice that Betsy Mitchell was really important in the field for, for opening up the, the science fiction and fantasy field to, to writers of color and specifically black writers and, and that she'd never really gotten her public due for the work that she did. So, you mm -hmm. know, when I knew that I was going to do these episodes with you, I thought to myself, I'd like to, I'd like to talk about her. Yeah. Let's give and, her some uh, credit. Let's, and talk let's about give her her, her due. Damn it. Yeah. She's cool. We were all part of like the same, I, I was in a lunch group through work. So I, so I've, I, 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 I've known her over the, over the years, but so just some, some professional biographical information. The reason that she was able to open up the field to, to, to these black writers is Betsy's an, Betsy's an editor, Betsy Mitchell. She's an important editor and an editor with a, a long career in the field. She was actually a newspaper reporter for two years at the Omaha World Herald. That was like her first job. But after that, she, uh, in, in the early 80s, she moved to New York and got a job at Analog, assisting the editor, Stan Schmidt. And eventually she became the managing editor of Analog magazine. After Analog, she moved to Bain Books. That was her first job in book publishing. And actually, this, this is to me, this is pretty cool. She was Jim Bain's original employee at Bain Books. She was the Whoa. first person that he hired. After after he left Tor Books to to start his own company. Oh wow! Yep. So she worked at Bain Books. Eventually, she, she became a senior editor there, and then after Bain, she became associate publisher of Bantam Spectra Press. And after that, she founded the the genre science fiction and fantasy imprint Aspect Books. It was an imprint of Warner Books, which. 
if I'm not mistaken, eventually through various corporate mergers and sales, eventually became Orbit. I think mm. Orbit is the successor of Warner Books. But so she founded the Aspect imprint at Warner Books. And then after that, in 2002, she became vice president and editor-in-chief of Del Rey Books, wow. where she stayed until she retired in 2011 to become a freelancer. And as far as I know, she's still doing that and is, is still working for Open Road Media, working on science fiction ebook backlists for them. So she's had this very long and very influential career for 35 years. Just in general, she she's edited things like Heir to the Empire by Timothy Zahn, which, you know, huge Star Wars novel. She's edited Hyperion by Dan Simmons. That was a big book. She's edited stuff by Terry Brooks, William Gibson. And wow. um, right. So an important editor just on the face of it. But like you said, and, and I wanted to talk about, she's also important because she she did a lot in her career to bring black writers into the field. So like I said, she she discovered Nalo Hopkinson uh, and published her first book uh, in 1998. Uh, I think the title of that is, is Black Girl in the Ring. She discovered Minister Faust, who wrote some novels in, in the early 2000s. She also published Walter Mosley's two science fiction books, Blue Light, which was a novel, and Futureland, which was a story collection while she was at Warner. I guess Walter Mosley is more of a a fantasy writer. She told me that he wanted to try out science fiction and, and she was happy to help. Uh, she also published a novel called Aftermath by LeVar Burton. Oh, wow. Of, of Star Trek Jordy fame. LaForge. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, while, while she was at Warner Books in 1997. She's worked with Stephen Barnes on some significant projects. I mentioned before his his two books, Lion's Blood and, and Zulu Heart, the sort right. of what-if reversed Africa-Europe books. Betsy published those. And that's a big deal because I think even in the early 2000s, a book where like, Africans are the people in charge. Europeans are the slaves. Yeah. Maybe kind of like a tough sell, right? But Betsy saw the worth of those books, and and she she published him. Apparently, he had been wanting to 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 write those for a while, but hadn't really found a publisher willing to to take them on. But so she published those books as well as a, a couple of other novels of his. Yeah, and going they're, by they're... this letter she sent, it sounds like. I know she didn't discover Octavia Butler, but it sounds like she rescued her from what might have ended up being obscurity. Yes. Like yes. she says, um, I'm just going to quote her letter. When I became editor-in-chief of the sci-fi fantasy list at Warner Books, Octavia Butler's Xenogenesis and Patternist series were languishing in the backlist with little attention and terribly outdated cover art. Props to Warner Books for allowing me to commission gorgeous new covers for those titles and to give Octavia a lot more support when we published the trade paperback edition of Parable of the Sower in 1994. We weren't even Octavia's primary publisher, Four Walls, Eight Windows was that, but the art, marketing, and publicity departments came to understand that she was an important talent, and they all worked with me for the next six years to raise her profile via her reprints. Like, that's really, really cool. Now Octavia Butler is this, she's this giant in sci-fi right. fantasy, but it's, if it hadn't been for, for, for Betsy, she might not be, she might've just kind of been, oh yeah, like a footnote or something, which, which is 
sad <laughs> to think about. Yeah, it it's it's a sad possibility to contemplate. I've read I've only read Kindred of hers. I have a, a few more books, but Kindred is really great. And yeah, so Betsy revitalized her career. Octavia Butler went on to win a MacArthur Genius Grant. I think she was I think she was the first science fiction writer who ever won one of those. Parable of the Talents went on to to win the Nebula. Betsy edited that book. They were able at Warner to to send Butler on book tours, and they they were able to get her on the Charlie Rose show in 2000. Really, really helped her out in a big way. And like you said, she's been having this this cultural moment now for probably Ooh, yeah. a, at least five, if not ten years. Betsy did a lot to keep her from from falling into obscurity. Yeah, there's one other big important thing that Betsy did as as an editor. She commissioned the Dark Matter anthology that I've I've been referring to right. again and again over the past two episodes. She ran into Sharita at a at a publishing party, and Sharita, I, I guess, was saying, like, "I've got this idea for this book. I have this thing that I want to do." And Betsy said, "Hey, that sounds great. I want that book. Please do that book." So you know, she commissioned that book because you know she knew that it would be a historic project, a, a big deal within the field and, and she wanted to be a part of it. It all turned out very well. It, it won the World Fantasy Award that the year that it was published. And I think the, the sequel did as well. So she's played a, a very big role in, in making the field more diverse. But like we said at the beginning of the episode, book editors don't tend to really get a whole lot of, uh, no, of, they're uh, invisible public. most of yeah. the time. So yeah, I just, I, I figured I had an opportunity to talk about her here, and I, I just thought it would it would be good to to do yeah. that. And uh... yeah, Harley agrees. That's why he's yelling right now. Yeah, and we really do appreciate her. That was really sweet of her to to write back to you too, which I appreciate yeah, I, a lot. Um, yeah, I'm glad that she did. It was nice to hear from her. Yeah, she sounds lovely. She All is. right. So we okay, have been talking I... for two hours and almost twenty minutes. We need to. We need to wind down. Can I feel I, bad because there's a, so many writers we didn't cover, but we're so trying many. to cover. A, we're trying to cover like 50 years of ground. Can I? Thought, yeah. Can I? I'm sorry. Can I talk about just one more thing? <laughs> yes. Okay. Okay. Just one more thing. I'm like a uh, Columbo villain right now. Yeah. You, 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 maddening little man. All right. Just one more thing. <laughs> um, as far as one of the things that when I was working in the field, almost like seven or eight years ago at this point, say around like 2013 to 2015, that everybody was talking about in the field is that women don't win awards. Why aren't women winning awards? This is sexist right. and sure, maybe. But I just want to point out, and this is something that Christine Catherine Rush brought up in her introductory essay in Women of the Future's Past. And I went back and looked at it myself and, and she's right. First of all, women do win awards, even if you look beyond the big heavy hitters like Ursula K. Le Guin or um, Anne McCaffrey. They, they did win awards in the past. And what I specifically wanted to bring up is that there's this interesting moment in the, the late 1980s and the early 90s when women are actually winning a lot of awards and, and getting nominated for a lot of awards. It's noticeably more than what had come before. And uh, eventually it, it starts to tail off huh. after like the early to mid 90s. But yeah, so I just wanted to, to, to point out that 
In the Hugos, from 1988 to 1998, women won five Hugos for best novel out of wow. 11. That's seven seven men won, and Werner Vinge and Connor Win Willis tied for one year. The World Fantasy Award, as prolific for women, but they're there as well. But really, the, the most uh, interesting and, and noticeable groundswelling of, I guess you could say, women being nominated for and winning all these awards happens in the nebulas. Starting in, in 1985, uh, Octavia Butler wins the novelette category for Blood Child. And after that, it, it starts picking up in a bunch of different categories, not just the winners, but also there are many more women being nominated. I guess we don't, I won't rattle off like a whole bunch of books, but I will just say that from 1988 to 1998 in the Nebula Awards, women won the Nebula for best novel seven out of 11 years. That's cool. Um, yeah. And if we don't count 1998, it's six out of 10. And from 1988 to 1981, women won it every year, four years in a row. And then again in 1993. Wow. So like, all right, just some of the novels. These are things like uh, The Healer's War by Elizabeth Ann Scarborough in 1990. Lois McMaster Bujold won it for Falling Free. Pat Murphy won it in 1988 for The Falling Woman. Ursula K. Le Guin won it in 1991 for the fourth Earthsea book, Tahanu. And then in 1993, Connie Willis won it for Doomsday Book, which is a very good book. Yeah. The only book that broke the streak of, of women winning the Nebula Award was Stations of the Tide by Michael Swanwick in uh, 1992, which is itself a, uh, a great book. But so just if you go back and you look at these lists, the idea of, of women being nominated for and winning the the major awards in in large numbers is not just a recent phenomenon of the yeah. past 10 years like yeah. it, it happened in the past and uh it was seems to have been mostly forgotten at least at the time huh. back in 2010 or so to, to 2015 2016 there's a lot of women who won awards and even some other people, Tower of Babylon, Ted Chang won the Nebula yeah, for Best Novelette story. in 1990. Love that's that story. a gorgeous story. William F. Wu, who we talked about earlier, he was uh, nominated for a few of his, a couple of his short stories in the 1980s. These people are out there. Their accomplishments are out there. It's just a matter of, of looking. Yeah. And that's also something that hurts older writers. All we really have are our lists, right? The lists of awards. And the Sifo Grandmat, the list of Sifo Grandmasters, and the thing is, as far as the awards go, like they don't go back to the very beginning. The Nebulas mm -hmm. don't start until 1965. The Hugos don't start until 1953. So it was like whole careers worth of people just aren't in these lists because they're just from an earlier era. But so it's just like I said, these people are out there. You just just have to look or ask around a little bit. Don't just don't think that there's nobody there just because it feels right that there's nobody there. Because maybe not as many as we would like. There's a chance that maybe there was someone there. There's, right. There's yeah. A very good chance that there was someone there. Yeah. Whew. All right. I'm glad I remember right. that last it is, part. It is. We we have to we have to we have to wind down. I have to feed my cats before they eat me alive. Well, I, I, I appreciate you letting me uh, 
rant on about this. All right. So that is all for our two-part series on diversity in 20th century speculative fiction. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope we did something to dispel the myth that there was no diverse fiction or anything worth reading before the year 2000. Thank you for coming on, and thank you for your exhaustive research, Stephen. And thank, thank you. you. This was... I, I just wanted to say again, I, I really appreciated get, getting to do this. So thank you very much for, sure. for, for giving me the opportunity. Thank you for having Absolutely. me on. Absolutely. And thank you for coming on. And thank you all for listening. If you like what you heard, think about supporting us on patreon.com slash write good. Until next time, keep writing good. This has been Write Good with Raquel S. Benedict. Hosted by Raquel S. Benedict and produced by Matt Keeley for KS Media LLC. Theme song by OK Glass. For comments and concerns, please write to us at writegood at kittystasis.com. That is R-I-T-E-G-U-D at kittystasis.com. You'd like to support us, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash writegood. This has been a Kitty Steezes production. Kittysneezes.com in color.